Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. Policy Genius helps you find the right life insurance coverage by comparing options from America's top insurers with help from licensed, award-winning agents. Secure your financial future with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com to get free life insurance quotes in just a few clicks. That's policygenius.com. I guess I grew up on an older road. Hey, everybody! Welcome to another episode of The Hunting Collective. I am Ben O'Brien. We are at 168 episodes of this here program, and for almost all of them, or at least half of them, I have had Phil, the engineer, at my side. Phil, how are you, sir? Hey, how are you, Ben? I'm great. Uh, I'm a little... I'm not just going to get into it. We got a good conversation today with with Pat Durkin. If you don't know Patrick Durkin, you should. Patrick Durkin, outdoors.com and media.com holds his writing. He's one of the best writers in our space. He's one of the more thoughtful dudes that you'll ever meet. And he is a native of Wisconsin and has been writing on the outdoors and outdoor issues in Wisconsin for many, many, many years. Uh, probably longer than he'd like to admit. But he is a man you want to go to if you want to get a a good, long look at the Wisconsin wolf hunt that happened earlier in February. And uh, it's quite the saga field. you know much about this wolf hunt and how it went down? Have you been seeing it around since you're now like in the community? I just I just on the peripherals, I don't really know much about it. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting tale. It certainly has intrigue. It's got politics. It's got... Uh, courtroom issues it's got uh, social and political uh aspects it's got cultural aspects it's got wildlife managers it's got ecosystems it's got almost everything that uh, you'd want to have from any story it's almost like it could be like a netflix documentary so hopefully me and me and uh, old pat did a good job of putting it out there for you but uh there's it's more than meets the eye in terms of of this wisconsin wolf hunt we'll talk a little bit before we get there we'll, we'll set that up for you so you don't see so you hit the ground running when pat and i get into it but um it really is a good way to pick up on where we left off last week talking about animal rights and animal welfare and all the things that go into 
uh, that ideology because it does come up with within the opposition to wolf hunting altogether, and it does come up in this particular Wisconsin case uh, that we, we'll discuss. So I'm excited for you to hear that. We'll keep this intro brief just so you guys can get to that conversation because it's um, Pat does a wonderful job, a lot of really good ways to contextualize uh, wolf hunting itself, uh, the kind of like the politics of Wisconsin and how everything came to be what it was over there. So hopefully, Phil, you feel uh, you're excited for it now. You're intrigued. You're going to stick around for it. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, unfortunately, you give me no choice, but uh, yeah. yeah, you have to stick around <laughs> That's for right. it. So uh, I'm not going to apologize for that. All right. So Phil, Phil, listen, man, we got to talk about something. We got a really important, like what we're talking about today is very important to the hunting community. It's very important to the overall future of what we do and the viability of, of the North American model of conservation. So I don't want to downplay that, but there may be a bigger issue at hand here. Um, THC is moving like the regional chapter movement of the THC call is gaining steam. And I think it's a little bit out of our control right now. Uh, by my count, there are already half a dozen Facebook pages that exist as THC regional chapters. And we haven't, we don't even know what it is yet. We don't even know what a THC regional chapter even is. But um, they're, they're being formed. What do we, Phil, what do we do as, as my sage counsel on all things life and podcasting? Uh, have we gotten <laughs> we're gotten ahead of ourselves haven't we this is been this is this is bad this is really bad i don't know i don't this know what else bad. to say uh <laughs> i I, I would sued? just like to throw out now that i whatever's happening on these facebook groups it does not represent me at all um that being said you can use my face for merchandise um you know i'd like oh yeah if i get like a 10 percent cut or something you know you can put me on a t-shirt okay. or like a pin something like that I don't know. What do yeah. you think? I mean, listen, I think we're sitting on sitting on the most unintentional conservation organization ever created. When they look back in the annals of time, they're going to be like, how did the THC cult really get its start? And people will say, I'm pretty sure it was by accident. Uh, they started calling it a cult as a joke. And then eventually people caught on. There were membership cards. And then there were regional chapters. All of those things were jokes. But then they became real. And, and next thing you know, the world was changed in, indelibly forever. Um, that's kind of where I'm at with this. And so I'm not sure to bother to be excited about that, Phil, to be hesitant, to get move forward. I just need – I wanted to have this conversation in public so people could you know listen to us work through what I think is a crucial issue in the history of THC, the grand old history. Uh, they call us the GOP, the grand old podcast in a lot of circles. Um <laughs> Phil, <laughs> stop laughing. It's serious. Phil, what are we going to do? Ben, I, I, I don't know. I mean, do you think you should get involved? Yeah, listen, I spent all last night reading everybody's emails. So thank you to everybody that wrote into THC at the media.com. Not to, you know, some of you wrote to discuss the very important topics of race in the outdoors and animal welfare versus animal rights. Uh, and even this topic we're talking about today, wolves and how to manage them and what to do. Some of you wrote in about that, but most of you wrote in about starting your own chapter or wanting to join a chapter. Um, and so I guess I'll start by saying, Phil, very seriously, that uh, it's heartwarming. It's it's something that I didn't ever expect for so many people to be out there to want to kind of join together. 
Um, but it's something we definitely recognize. So um, we got to think on our feet here, though. We don't want to get any. Are we? You think we get in some legal trouble here? Like, where are we at? Do we need to apply to be a five hundred one c three? Yeah, I mean, if, you know, if this merchandise idea takes off, then probably. I think for now you're fine, though. I think you're fine. For now, we're all right. Yeah. Well, it, it, listen. Here's what I want to do. And um, as if you can't tell out there in listener land, I am uh, shooting from the old hip here. And so Phil, as always, is my confidant, and he'll tell me live on the air whether he thinks this is a good or bad idea, um, because we do we do this live every week. If you didn't know, um, here's what I want to do right now, uh, as it stands, we have at least fourteen proposed regional chapters of the Hunting Collective. We have uh, Blue Ridge, which is our uh, founding chapter by the, uh, the great Eric Hall. Colorado, Wisconsin, Southwest Michigan, New York, Illinois, Oregon, Alaska, Missouri, Maryland, Florida. So that's a good smattering across the country of people that are willing to take on the great, great responsibility of being a THG regional chapter leader, creator. How does that make you feel? Phil, I mean, tell like this is yours too. You've done this. Uh, it really sits at your feet. In in all honesty, I mean, it's 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 really cool. You know, these people who like clearly have similar interests because they enjoy the same podcasts. Um, sure, they can get together in these groups and hey, you want to grab a beer at this place or you know go shed hunting here, go hunting here, like whatever. I think you know, yeah, it's it's. I think it's 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 great. It has nothing to do with me. Uh, I think mo- most people who who listen to the show are like, "Why is the why is the non-hunter talking again?" Uh, I don't think so, Phil. <laughs> Only a, a, a smattering of our audience absolutely hates you, but everybody okay, else that's respects good. you. That's a, that's a smaller number um, than I thought, so that's great. Yeah, it's a smattering. smattering. I think we're going to call the Blue Ridge chapter the Phil Taylor inaugural THC Blue Ridge chapter of the Hunting Collective cult. Uh, it'll be hard to. We'll have to make an uh, an acronym for that. Okay, but in all seriousness, here's what I want to do. Okay, so Eric Hall reached out and he said he had already created uh, a page on Facebook. Other people have done this as well. Already created their own pages. Multiple of you, I don't know how many have have already been created. I, I lost count at about I don't know how many, six or eight of them. Um, here's what I want to do. I want to take a step back from this because we were a little bit surprised that this was even a thing. I take a step back from this and. Um, we're going to do the first thing we're going to do. And again, I want to state like we're actually doing this. Why the hell not is my philosophy. And what we're going to do is we're going to come up with two things. One, le- leaders of the cult, right? We got to get leaders going, Phil. Do you have any people in mind that you would like to nominate for these leadership positions within the hunting collective? Oh, I don't know. I mean, we've, we've got some, some, uh, frequent writers in some frequent mm-hmm. contest entry um you know people uh you know people like ab a. rich maybe would he be interested yeah. i don't know i haven't heard from Let's him in a while out. um yeah we should reach out to him i hope he's okay i haven't heard from people him like like luke reeves oh that's a good one i didn't even think about him sure nebraska chapter but he's married now he's not gonna have time oh yeah le- yeah, yeah. So, whoever over. told him to get whoever told that guy to get married <laughs> idiot yeah and you know, uh, if if it happened on a podcast, I would go as far to say that podcast is bad. Yeah, that podcast is actually responsible for whatever happens <laughs> in his life. That's right. Um, but I do have a list here that I've made, and I'll say that like everybody that wrote in, 
for each chapter, I've logged your emails in a little spreadsheet on my computer, and I'm not kidding. I it was the most ironic, like this is the most satirical, ironic thing for me to spend last night for like an hour making a spreadsheet of regional chapter leaders for some damn podcast. That I, it was the most hilarious. It was like I was on an episode of that. What's that Larry David show? Uh, Curb, Curb your, your enthusiasm. enthusiasm. It's like I was I was writing my own episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm last night as I was doing this. But anyway, uh, we're doing it. So screw you, Larry David. Don't try to satirize my life. Um. So right now, well, I want to I want to pick some leaders of this whole thing, and obviously, Phil. I mean, it's, it's going to be no surprise to you that Eric Hall is amongst the original leaders. Oh, of, of course. course. No surprise to you. Uh, also, Ben Upton wrote in to express his excitement about this. He obviously we know him from his many contributions to the show. He connected with another. He's out of Colorado. Connected with another member of our our little uh, cult here earlier in the year to give us a nice moment. Um, we have lots. Ryan Sapina and uh, Mike Peterson. Mike Peterson didn't ask for this, but I'm gonna give it to him anyway because I, I like him. And uh, I feel like he'd do a good job. He's formerly in the military, so he might do a good job. So we're going to pick a few of you guys and email you about this. Um, and then others have, have emailed, and we're going to ask you to, to uh, nominate yourselves and join us in doing this. But here's what we're looking for. People who want to help us establish these Facebook pages and help us establish a set of guidelines and community standards and value systems that we're going to put on these pages – uh, we're going to create a Facebook page that Phil and I are a part of for just the leaders of each one of these chapters. And then we're going to let those leaders go out in the world and create cool Facebook pages and uh, hang out with people around them that like to do what they do. So pretty simple. Try not to make it too self-important, but hey, I'm me. So that's uh, there's only so far we can go in that game. So Phil, are you can feel confident about this plan particularly? Uh, yes, I do. I think, yeah. As I, I think these groups will stay kind of close knit and compact. I think uh, I too. think they'll be good little communities for people to get together in. It's great. Yeah, I mean, right now the Colorado chapter has already has four people in it. Uh, the Blue Ridge chapter already has seventeen. <laughs> so uh, I think at Oregon, at Oregon we're up to two. Ooh. So uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So in your face, Washington. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it'll be something fun for us all to do. They're not going to be, you know, there's not millions of us out there. There's only a small number of us trying to do this for real. Um, and and you know, listen, the best things in life started off as a joke. So why not why not fall fully into uh, what we're up to here? So that's this is what I need from you guys all. If I mentioned your name as part of a, a leadership, email me, and we're going to set up a little call to start talking about this. Phil will join us, uh, right, Phil? yes we're gonna start talking about this see i <laughs> i've made i forced him to say yes because we're recording um and we'll start talking about how we want to do this make a little uh, kind of community guidelines thing and then we'll start and from there it's just about anybody who wants to anybody who's a new hunter who needs a mentor who is a mentor that needs a new hunter any of you that want to join share links share advice meet up go hunting together um there's a place for pretty much anybody who wants to get in and and do this. So, like I said, right now, um, we got offers from a lot of people to do this already. So, if you're in Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, Illinois, Oregon, Alaska, Missouri, Colorado, uh, if you're in the Blue Ridge Mountains, like I said earlier, you have uh, a prospective chapter near you, I think. So, um, all right, Phil, we did it. 
as much as I, as much as my personality only wants to make fun of this, it's also a big deal, man, because it just, it's, I know that we're in a pandemic. I understand that it's hard to find somebody that shares your values to do something as serious as hunting. And it's, it's sometimes, uh, you need a variable place to gather around. So if it's not a conservation group, why not this year program? So we're going to give it a try. Um, and the worst, worst thing we could do is fail. Yeah, I, I'd say here. Here's here's Ernest Phil again. Here we go. Ready? Three, two, one. I go. think by branding it a cult as a joke earlier, it kind of makes me want to laugh about this yes. even more. But yeah. I think we should just set the cult joke thing aside for a second and be like, "This is pretty cool." Uh, so I'm gonna go ahead and do that right now and say, "This is pretty cool." Yeah, because me and Phil, like, I I thought we might have this conversation in private and then and then seem like we're really buttoned up when we came on the air today. But then I thought, ah, what the hell? <laughs> Let people listen to what our own thought process is about this sure. and our introspection about this. So anyway, that's that's what we're going to do. THC at TheMediator.com. If you're in a state that I named or I did name and you would like to lead a chapter of this THC cult, then let us know. Let us know quickly. Put your hand up and I will call on you and we'll see what we can do in terms of getting all 50 states uh, to at least have one person out there who's willing to have the conversation and willing to line up hunts with someone. Like I said, two people meeting up via this podcast was cool for me. Let's see if we can and challenge ourselves to really create community in a time where community is absolutely void in a lot of our lives. So that I am all about. That I will push to the ends of the earth. And Phil and I will fight for you out there. Right, Phil? Here, here. Don't laugh at that. I'm serious. I'm serious. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll, I'll fight for you. See? There it is. Yeah. All right. All right. Now, on to the matter at hand, wolves in Wisconsin. I said earlier that that this really, this story about the Wisconsin's wolf hunt that happened in February really does have a lot of threads that we've talked about prior. It has a lot of, it has obviously anti-hunting sentiment. It has uh, the politics of polarization involved. Um, it has legislation, uh, how, le- how legislatures, state legislatures specifically in this case, work within conservation and can impact it positively and negatively. Um, it really is a story that encapsulates, much like the bear story in California, encapsulates much of what we've talked about over the weeks, uh, last many months here that we've been been covering all those myriad of topics kind of this this kind of condenses them and gives them a real way to see why all these kind of ancillary topics within hunting like animal rights or animal welfare or when we talked about the Taibi paradox with Miles Nolte like when we start to roll all that together into to one package you can see that reflected the importance of each one of those little pieces reflected in these very uh you know, high stakes, political, social, um, games around hunting bears, hunting wolves, whatever it might be. All of that, uh, becomes apparent and is laid bare in these situations. So I don't want to give any of the details out uh, about this story. If you don't know anything about it, uh, you're going to be interested. Pat Dirk is going to take us through it. Um, and Phil, I, as always, I want to give you a chance to just talk about what you think about wolf hunting because we do talk about a lot of, a lot about the non-hunter perspective in this. But do you um you would never want to hunt a wolf, would you? Like am I am I uh, correct in saying that? Yeah, I, I don't have any urge to whatsoever. 
<laughs> I mean, but you know, that, <laughs> that, that could change after a while, after I go hunting one time <laughs> probably <laughs> for turkeys should probably do that first before I have any opinions on, on hunting wolves, but yeah. Well, but that's it, man. Like non hunters are going to be the ones that sway this and, and are, and are very involved in obviously, um, this story in and of itself. So I know I'm not, I'm, I'm giving you guys a lot of like little hints at what, what this entails, but it is, um, it is an interesting, interesting story. Let me, before we get into Pat Dirk and Pat Durkin is a Wisconsin guy and another very famous Wisconsin guy is Aldo Leopold. And he had a lot of famous quotes about uh, a lot of things, but he did talk about wolves in one of his most famous quotes. I'll read it to you just to give you a little perspective because I think we all have, you know, kind of special relationships with wolves. We all, you know, we have dog. A lot of us have dogs. I don't, but a lot of people have dogs. Phil has mango. And so people have, very special relationships with their canines. And I think a lot of times that, that bleeds into what we think of. But there's also just a great a great misunderstanding of our own uh, emotional connection to wolves and where that comes from. So this quote's from Aldo Leopold. He said, we reached the old wolf in time to watch a fierce green fire dying in her eyes. I realized then and have known ever since that there was something new to me in those eyes, something known only to her and to the mountain. I was young then and full of trigger itch. I thought that because fewer wolves meant more deer, that no wolves means a hunter's paradise. But after seeing the green fire die, I sensed that neither the wolf nor the mountain agreed with such a view. All right. You get the chills up your spine that I did because I've read that quote so many times, Phil. Do you feel it? You feel it now the emotion of, of the moment? Yeah, of course. It was mainly because of the uh, narrator. Just did a stellar job. Well, I'm just trying to do as good as Steve Rinella. So that's, that's probably what you'll hear. All right. So here comes Pat Dirt. All right, Pat Dirk, and we've just been talking for 20 minutes. We forgot to hit record, and so okay. we're going to have to recreate some of the good stories that we're telling. <laughs> <laughs> because with all the serious things in the world, uh, just talking about fatherhood is uh, is one of the things – one of the things that allows us to laugh at ourselves <laughs> the most, I think, is as what we do and don't do in the in the realms of fatherhood. You were te- you were just telling me that uh, that you look on young fathers like me with with some uh, I don't know how would you describe it confusion <laughs> well, <I laughs> or like self reflection. <laughs> yeah, amusement, but also um, respect. Where I, I I've been there, I had my chance and. I like to think my daughters are all doing well despite me. And, and but, so it's fun to see now how you guys handle things and how my daughters ha- handle their kids. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, it's a, uh, it's interesting even, you know, talking to my dad about it too and thinking about, you know, the things that you do that you think are normal, you're kind of in your own head as a parent. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's fun to look back and laugh, but I was telling you that I, I'm not sure that I'm too strict or not strict enough on my kids. Sometimes it's hard to gauge, you know, were you very, were you strict on your kids growing up? Maybe too strict, you think, or not, you know, not enough? I, I, um, I like to think I struck a good balance. You know, I, I was strict, but I really have no doubt in my mind that my daughters knew I loved them. You know, there was never hmm. that doubt where, because I, I remember as, as a child growing up in the 60s, I think parents um, we're a little more detached back then and definitely a lot more disciplinarians. And you did question sometimes where you stood, where 
I doubt my daughters ever doubted that. Mm. I think they knew how that um, I might be a real, real prick sometimes, but that and I might make them do things their mother wouldn't make them do. But I, I really have faith that they knew I loved them. Yeah. Yeah, and I even look back at my own childhood, and I and I think, well, I guess I turned out pretty good, and I love my parents, right? With all with all that I am, and I don't, you know, I was a pretty laid back kid, I think, so maybe I had a little smoother experience than others. Mm-hmm. But I certainly, like I told you, my mom caught me doing something I shouldn't one time, and uh, back in the day, she chased me down the street pretty far. I feel like she chased me <laughs> like a half a mile. I don't know, it was a long way. Yeah, she chased me, and I you know. So I certainly had those uh, those moments where I was rebelling and doing my different things. But you you know you just wonder is it is it how your kids were you know predisposition you know high strung laid mm-hmm. back you know do you handle each one differently around my house yeah. we're pretty I, I like to think we're pretty strict although like you were telling me like I think a lot of millennial parents are probably pretty more laid back than than you were or maybe even your parents were for sure mm-hmm. like I I um. I do enjoy the fact that, you know, I don't, I should say first, I really do not like it when people, um, unless I know them really well, I really don't like when people badmouth their parents. Because I think, well, you know, maybe mm. your parents weren't great, but they did the best they could. At least mine did. Mm. And so I never question um, the, the end result. I think, well, dad might have been um, not the kind of dad I tried to be. But I look at what he produced and where we all ended up, and I think that's a pretty nice success rate he had. So he could have been doing everything wrong. And I and I, and I find myself quoting him a lot as I got older because <laughs> I realized the dumb son of a bitch knew something. <laughs> and he, he knew people really well. And he could really size people up, people up quickly. And I really came to respect that. And, and these days as a parent, I um, my daughters make it sound like I was a real ogre. But then I always tell them, well, I must have been doing something right because you're all, all three of you are doing very well. You, ch- you chose good husbands and I, I can't complain. So yeah. it, it's, it's um, I, I think the human spirit is such so that it can overcome a lot if you, if you're willing to um, devote yourself, you know, to it and, and take responsibility for your own life at some point. Yeah. Yeah. And I would be honest too as a young father having to adjust to that the commitment to be to really be good at it you know because Mm -hmm. it isn't there isn't just one way to do it Uh, yeah you have to know your children and try to adjust to them and adjust to the environment that they're in and Mm -hmm. and really give them a chance to be who they are you know um while also setting some pretty serious rules sometimes for for uh for these little people, <laughs> I, I was just telling you, like, I look like a, I look like I just got in a fight with Mike Tyson because both of my kids have been recently like jumping on me, punching me, and scratching me and stuff. Well, so I, I look like I've been through it. Yeah, and, and yeah, I'm sure too. You appreciate the fact that this won't continue. That at some point they'll mm-hmm. get too strong to do that, too big to do that, and they mm-hmm. they can't knock that around anymore because he actually will hurt you. And I I tell myself that when I put the kids in my back and haul them upstairs at night to put them to bed that they won't be able to ride my back um, a whole lot longer once they get to a certain size at least not very far so you appreciate why you can yeah exactly and that, like you're saying it, it becomes it's an iter- it's all an iteration of the thing that happened before right it's like it's mm-hmm. all time repeats itself you know yeah. and, and that's yeah. what I'm sure you know you as a grandfather you get to see that now 
mm-hmm. and you get to see time. You know, my I think my dad does that quite a lot with me, where it's like <clears throat> you know we he sees kind of the iteration. We were talking about. I took my kid out to a nature sanctuary over the weekend. We did. We were trying to find twelve different bird species, and we were going around, and it was fun. And my dad is is the type of person who knows every bird in the woods and spent a lot of time as a young person hiking around in the winter and just looking at birds, you know, just looking around and, and, and finding uh, himself in nature. So I, I think that's something that I want to follow and I'm sure he could probably see me trying to instill that in my kids, you know, mm-hmm. even if I didn't understand, I don't think I understand it until I had kids. I didn't look at my dad and say like how amazing it is to have being an encyclopedia of the outdoors like yeah. he is yeah. until I had my own kids. And I'm like, I better, I better give that to them. Yeah. I better make sure they have what he has. Yeah. Um, you know, and so it, it, yeah, it's just, it's just like a shifting baseline. And that's fun. It's fun too, to think back. I can, I can remember as a perhaps four or five year old, being amazed to hear that as we're driving past this lake, my dad say that that lake is deeper than, than he can stand tall. And I remember being just shocked to think that something could be bigger than my dad, There's something mm-hmm. deeper than my dad. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then you get to be a little bit older and you realize, no, lakes typically are <laughs> much, deeper much than deeper. most guys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but that was, that was a, a, a learning experience for me at the time. Yeah. Well, I've recently taken to writing down, you know, my, my son's at the why stage of life. Everything's why this, why this, why that? And so I, every night I put him to bed and I let him ask me some questions. Recently, oh. I've had to limit, I've had to limit it. I'd be like, you, I'll give you seven because <laughs> it could go, could go along into the night. Uh, and I give him questions and then I, I write them down when I go back to my desk and write them down when we're done. And so mm-hmm. I have, you know, 150 questions in this notebook. Yeah. And it's fun to to just look back at his progression, even over a short period of time, of the questions he's asking and how he's learning. Yeah. Good for you. Taking in the world, you know. It's yeah. it's a it's a special time because you know eventually he's not going to want to ask me anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's right. going to be telling me stuff right. uh, eventually. Yeah. So it's those little idiosyncrasies. Yeah. Eventually, though, it does come back where you once you're now. Um, I always had this um, in my mind. I have a where I divide men from boys is about age 25. We're mm-hmm. um, at about sitting around age 25 to get their head out of their ass and start thinking like an adult. And I, so I always told my daughters uh, two things basically is um, don't get married. Don't marry a guy until he's at least 25 because that's when he gets his head out of his ass. And even mm-hmm. then, uh, make sure you've done something where you have your own career so you, so you can always basically tell anyone in your life, you know, F you, I'm out of here and not be, not be tied down. So I, um, I like to think my daughters took that advice. So we'll see though. They're, they're still, they're like your age. So <laughs> I got some time ahead of them. <laughs> <laughs> they're doing pretty well though, yeah. by all accounts. By all accounts. Yeah. I mean, I, did you feel like the outdoors, uh, did your daughters do a lot with you in the outdoors growing my, up? Did my they? oldest one did. Yeah. My oldest yeah. one, um, she, you could tell at a young age she she was into it. I mean, she could she understood about um, listening for geese off in the distance, listening for turkeys, and I tried the same approach with all three of them, taking them at an early age hunting and fishing, especially for like geese. You can just put them in a cornfield and you know hunker down and, and wait them out and listen for stuff and watch for stuff. But um, the oldest one took to that. 
and the youngest ones didn't, my two younger daughters. Mm. But then as now as young adults, they're um it's it's fun like the one I was telling you earlier about going ice fishing yesterday with my some of my grandkids and one and the youngest boy falling in into the hole and that kind of ruined ruined his day. But um <laughs> it, it's fun now to see all three of my daughters understanding the importance of hunting and fishing and seeing seeing it in a bigger picture and getting their and that you can tell now they really want me to take their kids along yeah. as soon as possible. Yeah, that's it's, like I said, that's coming very clearly into my life right now. Seeing what I want my kids to be and then looking at the other people in my life and being like, man, I never appreciated you know, this about my mom or this about my dad or this about my best friend. And I want my kids to have that part of yeah. them. Yeah. Even if I can't give it to them, you know, it's mm-hmm. important to know <laughs> your own limitations as a father, I feel like, because I can't, there's just, I'm not real handy. Like, yeah. you're not going to come over to my house and be like, hey, could you fix my pipes? I'd be like, I can try. <laughs> What's wrong with your pipes? <laughs> well, let's have a discussion. I'm not, you know, I didn't get, I didn't pick that up, but mm-hmm. there's other people in my life that are. Um, and so you kind of like, you, you kind of carve up those things that you know that, that you need to you know, push your kids towards. Yeah. And then and then once you have your kids, you, you see that, I think, a little bit more more clearly and precisely. Um, and it helps you appreciate the people around you for who they are, you know. Definitely. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I'm sure, sure, too, as a father, you see the different interests and talents at a young age of, of your two boys. I mean, I mm-hmm. definitely saw it in my girls as they were at very small ages, the things that caught their interest, things that didn't. It's fun to yeah. watch. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever, and you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, Try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months. Wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of six sick folks. Or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription. And you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor, no waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. 
Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. My definite plan, and I think this goes for a lot of people that listen to this show, particularly because a lot of emergent hunters, new hunters out there, that are just coming to it at a at a you know middle age in a lot of cases early 30s late 20s in a lot of cases where people are coming to it because they see a value of it and they have either have kids or themselves want to you know find those pathways into that value set and uh, it's interesting to see people enter it that way mm-hmm. um, and for me I kind of want to rewind my clock a little bit and and see that perspective like I said, just take my kid. We sat, we went and sat in a bird blind that was on this nature sanctuary, and we just sat there. And we will, and there's bird feeders. These birds started to come in. You know, black cat, black cap chickadee comes in. We get, you know, western tanager. Yeah, they'll come in, and it's like, and I'm sitting there thinking, this is practice for the turkey blind. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's in my yeah. mind. He has yeah. no idea what, but in my mind, I'm like, be be quiet, don't scare the birds <laughs> away. And and for me, I'm like looking at my watch to see how long can we sit here. How long does he is he interested in the mm-hmm. little things about what's going on around him and he was uh he very much was so to me it's just rewinding that clock a little bit not diving fully into hunting but taking like the little micro moments within hunting that that are important and and presenting them to him in another way you know Mm -hmm. trying to get him to just go walk around in the woods just go look at some birds just go you know listen for owl hoots in the morning just go you know just to just so he has that appreciation first where it's not like Mm -hmm. You know, like I am, like running headfirst into every turkey I see. You know? <laughs> see what I can do with them. Like it, yeah, I'm yeah. with you. It, it it's a special it's a special time, and I think that you know, like you were saying, girls and boys for sure. We we have these conversations now about how how do we make sure hunting is a little more accessible to all genders and anybody that wants yeah. in. You know, when it's just kind of breaking some of those barriers down. But it'd be interesting. As I said, my wife wants to have a third little one, and I'm hoping for a girl just so I can get that perspective, you know, <laughs> so I can see both sides yeah. of raising a, a kiddo, and then also just seeing how they go through the outdoors, what they're interested yeah. in, each each one of them. So it's it's uh, you learn about a lot. Of, like I said, you learn mm-hmm. about a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about the people around you uh, as you try to do this damn hard thing. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I always felt there there are aspect of my life growing up that I never really thought about at all when I was young was that my dad's father, my dad's mother lived with us when I was growing up and she was more, she was much more, um, 
aware of the outdoors than my dad was. My dad knew how to hunt and fish just enough to get me going. But as, as far as overall knowledge of the outdoors, the different birds, different songs that birds sing, the trees, um, how to judge, a, how to identify tree trees by their bark, I learned all that from my grandmother. And it, and it wasn't like she sat me down and taught me stuff, just that you hung around her outside when she was working and she'd show, show me stuff, you know, and I remember um, she learned too that I was easily entertained. She gave me a hatchet when I was about five years old and just kind of turned me loose with it. And I was chopping down everything that she told me to chop down. But by, by learning that way, she could tell me um, that basically uh, black, black locust trees were fair game. Any black locusts that want to chop down, have at it. It would just regrow anyway. And, you know, but all these kind of little things, you know, that she taught me. That years later, I realized, God, you know, Granny knew quite a bit of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and you just don't know. Like I said, there's a lot of that in my life that I, I, if I could rewind the clock, I'd go back and be more interested in and, yeah. and take those opportunities. Because you just, man, I, yeah, I don't know how you foster that in a little person. But I, I definitely miss some things along the way now that I have a child. I'm like, man, if I would have followed you know, a little bit closer into the examples I had, um, man, I would have been, I would have been a whole lot better. <laughs> I've been running a whole lot faster by now. <laughs> a whole lot better at hunting even. <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing you made up for it. <laughs> I try. I do my best. Well, uh, I'm glad we could talk about fathers and sons and daughters and maybe warm some hearts before we get into the next <laughs> topic. Sure. Because, because, I guess, I mean, how we break into, you know, there, there's the macro issue of wolves, right? You, wolves are just incredibly charismatic, incredibly important, and also incredibly imperiled species on any landscape, you know, really mm-hmm. around the world, but especially in North America. They found themselves a special place in the hearts of, of uh, everyone in this country, really, in some, <clears throat> in some way, shape, or form, whether that's more of a, you know, animal rights perspective or... or you know, our perspective as conservationists and hunters and how we see things, but there's no one that doesn't have an opinion on this, I think, um, educated or not. So that's where, you know, this Wisconsin wolf hunt comes in. You know, the reason I want to talk to you is obviously you're, you're tuned into it, but one of the first things I want to kind of dig into is what, you know, the Wisconsin hunting culture, I feel like is, is fairly unique. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know if you would term it as insular or how you would describe it, but what is the Wisconsin hunting culture defined? And then how did, how do people there look upon wolves? It's really, um, I think it's fair to say that as we always default to, it runs the gamut. Um, mm-hmm. I can, I can call any number of people I know and and know that they individually do not represent the overall Wisconsin experience, the overall um, image we might have of Wisconsin hunters. Um, I know on the, the wolf especially, I, I can think um, you get what was in, what I found one of the things I found interesting about this this particular hunt we had, you know, was it two weeks ago already, was that um, you saw a real divide between trappers the fur trappers and and the hound mm-hmm. hunters versus the, um, also the guys who are uh, going to be calling wolves or else putting out like a 
sitting over a carcass wherever it might be out in the woods and, and waiting for him. And so there was some real friction between, especially the, the trappers and the hound hunters. We have um, a, a really strong hound hunting uh, subculture in Wisconsin. You know, the guys that hunt um, bears, they, there's guys that hunt over bait, and there's guys that hunt with hounds. And we've always had to regulate the bear season separately, basically. We, one year we open the hound hunting first, and the next year we open the bait sitters next first. So, and then hmm. go back and forth. And the wolf, the wolf season, wolf hunting tradition in our state is so short, so um, young. We really haven't um, gotten everything figured out yet. And so this this thing, the way it, the way it blew up on fairly short notice, without real yeah. in depth planning, um, it was almost yeah, you know, it was almost predictable. Like I wrote about one of my columns that something like this would happen. We're yeah. just got things did not go off well. We're not regulated right, and now we have a black eye. Yeah, and you you like to think I I want to kind of maybe start in the beginning here and give people yeah. the full the full perspective. But you know, maybe starting at the end, you, you end up with the arguments or reasoning we quite often use for predator hunting in our space that I think you and I would agree on. Mm-hmm. You know, hunting is a management tool. Uh, at the behest of state game agencies and biologists and people that we have entrusted VR model of conservation to do the work necessary to understand um, how to manage these populations correctly. This is a bit of a black eye on that system. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a bit, you know, would you agree? This doesn't look great in, in, in terms of the way it was managed. Well, I, I definitely agree. I um, I wish it weren't so. I wish I could act like this is, something that we can just um, learn from and, and live from or learn from the experience and move on. But I, I don't think it's going to be that easy. I think we're going to have this thrown back at us a lot, even though I've written, you know, I went back this morning before you and I talked and I've been writing a newspaper column in Wisconsin since 1984. And I'll always brag about the fact in that time, I've never missed a week yet. I've, I've produced a column every week. Um, just in the past 20 years, I've written at least 35 columns, weekly columns on wolves, uh, yeah. wolf uh, regulations, wolf uh, coming in and off, on and off, on again, off again with the endangered species listing. And so we have all this history with wolves, yet um, hunting them is really, we're still learning it. We're still developing it. And this last one, we can get into all the details, but, you know, this last one we had, it came on pretty quickly. We um, the DNR set a quota of two hundred, but then um, they have a we have to share that in Wisconsin by treaty regulations. You know these are court ordered federal court decisions that we cannot just um, manage wolves or deer or bears up north how we want. We got to do it basically in collaboration with the, um, the, our Ojibwe nation, the Chippewa uh, people. And so they, they basically took that quota then of 200 and gave the um, Chippewa 89 of that based on um, the wolf population off the reservation areas. So it's kind of complicated, but basically it came down to, I think it was 89 wolves for the, for the um, Chippewa people and then the rest for us, 119 for, um, for, um, or is that 80, 
81 for the Chippewa, 119, 119 for, yeah. for um, the, the non-tribal people. And went from there. Well, as it turns out, we shot, you know, 200 and I think the final kill was 216 wolves. So way over our uh, our quota of 119. Hmm. And we can't just um, act like that doesn't matter that we can just take a Chippewa didn't use because they don't use theirs. They they use theirs to protect the wolf because in, in their culture in Wisconsin, it's considered um, the wolf's considered their brother in, in um, among our, our tribal people. Whereas um, I think it's I think it's Navajo out west where they don't have the wolf. They don't hold the wolf in that kind of regard. You know, they they were more of um, mm-hmm. I think shepherds and had sheep. So they weren't. Um, herding, I guess they had herds of something they took care of, and the wolves would prey on them. So they had a different perspective. But Wisconsin, this is what we have, and we we way overshot that. And now, um, what I find frustrating is that the first three years we had the season back in 2012, 2013, and 2014, we did a really good job of staying within our quota. We only were off by I think 2.1 percent overall. We went over a little bit, really shut things down quickly, controlled it, didn't have these problems. This time, um, it's a different situation, and the politics were different. And it ended up where now we have this black guy we're going to have to deal with on a legal front, I think. I'm sure the Chippewa aren't going to just let let this go by. They'll 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 have to find some way to get their, um, their compensation for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's one of those, I think with, with a lot of these situations, the grizzly bear and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, it ha- it is complex. I mean, it's not as simple as, um, we have, what is it? A thousand wolves and this is how many we need to take off the landscape. You know, we have our population, um, thresholds and we know what they are. It's just not that sense. It's not just a numbers game. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so many other things that are involved. Do you, I mean, honest, quite honestly, when you start looking at this, you have to, and you just said this, you have to understand that like we we the numbers that are being given by the state game agencies are so important to hit mm-hmm. because this is again it's prescriptive. It's yeah. not just they didn't just come up with this number. It's a prescription for how to maintain uh, a healthy ecosystem and a healthy wolf population, ungulate populations, predator prey dynamic, all the things that are important for any and cohabitation. All the things that are important for that ecosystem function are baked into that number. And when you miss it, it's a huge, you can't understate how big of a deal mm-hmm. it is to miss it and miss it by that much. Yeah. Um, is that felt locally? I mean, is it, you feel like uh, for whatever bars people can go into, are a lot of people talking about this in hunting camps and and discussing it? it I'm sure it's a part of the buzz there. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's been a nonstop discussion the last last two weeks. And again, it very, it really varies by which group you're talking to. But um, I, I've been really um, disappointed by how many people just think the quota was, because we said the quota was 200, they think that, well, it was only 16 over that quota, but, but that's not the reality of it. The way this will break yeah. down in, in our court rulings, the way it will break down in the, in the, in the eye of the public opinion that's not going to fly, people. You know, mm-hmm. I, I I guess the way I look at it, Ben, I know we're on a, onto a really hot issue, sure. where people are mad when I get emails and text messages from my non-hunting sisters-in-law, 
want to know what, what the hell was happened here. And yeah. you have to go back and explain that, well, in, yeah, in, in terms of wildlife management and wolf management, this did not hurt. This did not deliver a, a significant blow to the wolf population in this state. But that's not really what it's all about. It's a lot, lot bigger than that, you know. And yeah. I, I really have a hard time when it fits our, when it fits our narrative, to act like while well, we we stay within this biological goal, I think well that's not how it's going to be determined no. going going forward. No, yeah, the social and political dynamics are part of the conservation game at this point. You can't Definitely. discount them. It's not yeah. just a numbers game. Yeah, you have to look at. Were we not only were we able to manage the population via that overall number, but were we able to manage the social and political dynamics that go along with this particular species? Because you can't just you can't decouple those things. You can't take them apart, can you? I mean, there's no, no way. No, no, I, I agree. I, I um, I, I find it fascinating how, in some circles, this became a a political argument too. You know, where yeah. where you know, like in some of the arguments you see they keep saying things like um well we wanted to get the season in now because the biden administration might um walk it back and and pull this thing off the endangered species put it back on the endangered species list and my um the thing i pointed out in my column is that you go back in time ben and when this thing was first brought up when we first tried to get wolves delisted in wisconsin it was the Clinton administration pushing mm-hmm. the, the, the people running the Fish and Wildlife Service, the, the Secretary of the Interior, the Secretary of the Fish and Wildlife Service. They were the ones trying to push early on to get it off the endangered species list once we met the goals in the Great Lakes. And we met the goals mm-hmm. in the Great Lakes about over 20 years ago. But still, it wasn't until the Bush administration got it off the endangered species list in this region, but then um, went back on during court fights, and then the Obama administration put put it back out there again, removed the the listing. So we had these hunts in 2012, 13, and 14. That was during the Obama years. So yeah. now, so when I hear people act now like this is a liberal versus conservative or Republican versus Democrat, I think you don't you're not being fair to the history of this. That the real, yeah. you know, at, at a federal level, I have a hard time believing that whether it was Clinton, George Bush, Obama, or Trump, that they really had a whole big investment politically in, in moving that thing on or off the endangered species list. Yeah. Maybe that speaks to the de-evolution of our politics, you know, or the polar, like the extreme polarization of yeah. where we are. Because if you take this back, I, you know, I, in, the, in the essence of, of just like boiling it down to this situation, you know, if you take this back, you, you go back to – October of last year when then interior secretary secretary of the interior David Bernhardt announced that um the federal government would remove gray wolves from from the ESA endangered species act in the lower 48 and he said at the time uh after more than 45 years as a listed species the gray wolf has exceed exceeded all conservation goals for recovery Today's announcement simply reflects the, de- the determination that this species is neither a threatened nor endangered species based on specific factors Congress has laid out in the law. Uh, as specifically, like, we, I guess, what I think about this is wolves, you know, they belong in the landscape, and if they're there in sustainable 
numbers, it's not debatable that we should have them in our system of hunting, our system of wildlife mm-hmm. conservation, to me. Yeah. Uh, it's just not a debatable point. But when it gets tossed into, I guess we should start, let, let's just kind of start there and tell everybody the story from, you know, the Trump administration and Secretary Bernhardt removed the wolves from the listing. A lot of people say it was a campaign initiative to to rouse the the republican base to move on this can you take us you know from that point how we get to what are we five six months of you know Mm -hmm. after that now we're we're rushing through a wolf hunt and and looking at the ramifications but can you take us a little bit through the history after after that happened from what i understand ben the um the trump administration the fish and wildlife service did move this a little bit faster than normal, probably because it was an election year. They wanted to get it mm-hmm. get it out there right before the election that they were, were removing it. So it probably did make some people happy. I guess I'd argue most people that were um, really had a had a um, an interest in this probably had their minds minds made up anyway on where they stood on that issue. But yeah. so they so they removed it. And, but they probably have removed it if it weren't an election year. They probably were still within a couple months of doing it. It wasn't like I don't think the Trump administration was going to reverse something that the Obama administration had supported, that Clinton supported. That basically had a whole list of administrations that really did want want this thing off the endangered species list because it met the requirements we'd set over twenty years ago in this region. But sure. um, once it was removed. That was like late October, the announcement came out. And then I think it was November 3rd, it was actually put on a, on a timetable by, um, I think it was December 6th, Wisconsin DNR came out with a notice that, in their opinion, we should hold off and not hold our first season till the following November, um, the mm-hmm. first Saturday in November, which would have been, I think, November 6th this fall. Um, meanwhile, we should also point out that this, this population of wolves in the Great Lakes it's basically across the northern tier, northern parts of um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, and, and the upper peninsula of Michigan. There's no, as far as I know, there's no wolves down in the lower peninsula of Michigan. It's all up in the, right. you know, in the upper Great Lakes region. But um, meanwhile, Minnesota showed no move to, to um, start a season this year, and Michigan did not either. They both um, were kind of holding back. And when still when Wisconsin announced they're going to hold one in November, I think outside of Wisconsin it was looked at as kind of a fairly aggressive um, announcement that we're going to have our fir- first wolf season within a year of it being delisted. Mm-hmm. And I think um, b- based on this, my knowledge of how we've conducted wolf hunts in Wisconsin in the past and how we led up to it, I thought it was a prudent move to, to uh, let's say – we got we got to get public hearings get get it, get this out in the front of the public discuss this thing um, biologically and socially get the tribes involved um, reconvene our wolf committees we have with the citizen involvement and really mm-hmm. make sure we think this through carefully and see what's changed you know in the last seven or eight years since we last had a wolf season and because the one thing we know is something like wolves and then something coming off the endangered species list. I would just think it'd be real prudent to proceed carefully. There's no rush. Um, let this thing, as I always keep saying, play the long game. There's, you know, it won't be our last chance. That if, we, if we do it right, this won't be our last chance. Let's just do, you know, take our time with this. Mm-hmm. But that didn't happen. Um, the politics got involved, and 
one of the really, I think, um, interesting nuances of Wisconsin's situation is when um, wolves were delisted back around, I think it was around 2009, 2011, so I had court battles. Well, when they came off the list in 2011, one of our lawmakers quickly passed a law within about three or four months to put the wolf season, make it part of the state statute. And, you know, we don't have, we don't set our turkey season, our rabbit season, squirrel season, waterfall seasons by statute. We sell them, but we set up by administrative rule where the wildlife agency dictates the rules. The legislature takes a final look at it, but overall, the, the Wisconsin DNR works with citizens groups to kind of come up with the framework and the laws that we'll, we'll govern it by. And then, then we proceed from there. Well, this one was put in the state statute. So technically, mm-hmm. when this thing was, um, when wolves came off the endangered species list back in the fall, well, um, some of the groups pushed to put, bring it back, bring the hunt back right away. And we saw what happened when we did that. Because I think thing I think some of the things that happened in the season would not have happened would not have rolled out the way they did if we'd taken yeah. a more calm, deliberate approach to it. Yeah, and that's I mean when when this first came out, um, when when that delisting occurred, Wisconsin DNR was was basically saying that from the beginning. There's right. a quote from from right when this delisting happened, where <clears> they. <throat> They suggest well, they would soon resume the hunting seasons like they had in 2012 through 2014. Mm-hmm. And the quote is, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources welcomes the responsibility of again managing wolves in Wisconsin. The department has successfully done so for decades and will continue to follow the science and laws that influence our management. All wolf management, including hunting, will be conducted in a transparent and deliberative, key term, deliberative process in mm-hmm. which public and tribal participation will be encouraged. And so this is a, again, there's a lot of nuance here. This is a situation where you and I would probably agree on the hunt being conducted, right? We, we're, we're happy that yeah. uh, the, for the delisting, we feel like that's the right thing to do here. But then you, you step to like, how do we implement this hunt? And that's where things fall apart. And um, are you familiar with this group, Hunter Nation? I'm not. And what they did here? Yeah, until until they popped up in this lawsuit, um, which basically they, they filed a lawsuit to force the DNR to, to open the season before the end of February. And yeah. a judge in Jefferson County, uh, I think it's one of those little ironies, you get into, when I get into the nuance, I think one of, the, one of the ironies of this whole thing with the lawsuit was that I think – People like me um, have always said we don't like it when outside groups sue to bring to to stop wolf wolf hunt and wolf management. And we really don't like it when um, these different environmental groups sue to get to get these kind of protections on wolves <laughs> and, and shut down any effort to, to, for state management. We resent that. But yet here is a case where a group comes in from well, they're based in Kansas, but one of their main People, I think their president is based. It lives in Wisconsin, but then mm-hmm. they 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 take it into a court in southern Wisconsin, which is not wolf country, and get this lawsuit to say that it, yeah yeah the judge says you you by law Wisconsin has to hold a wolf hunt before the end of February because that's what's in your state law, and I think yeah, yeah technically you're right, but um you know it's kind of a um I thought it was kind of when these I'm sure there was I can't prove it Ben but I'm sure they chose their judge carefully. I would, I would imagine. 
So Hunter Nation, if folks don't know, and I, I don't want to get this wrong, but well, you, the specific guy that you're talking about here is the guy that runs Hunter Nation. Uh, and I'm going to look this up while we're talking so I get this right. But this mm-hmm. gentleman was form, formally, um, let's look him up here, Luke Hilligman is the CEO of Hunter Nation. Um, and prior to working there, he was the chief executive officer of Ameri- Americans for Prosperity, which is basically a Koch brothers pack. And the and when you look at what Hunter Nation is, really, it's kind of a it seems like a right wing uh, advocacy group within the hunting space. Mm-hmm. Um, they have they do a lot of things that I agree with, in fact. Sure, um, but they have a strong position on the ESA and its and its reform. It says on their website, Hunter Nation supports major Endangered Species Act reform. The ESA has become the favored tool of anti-hunting groups to take wildlife and habitat restoration efforts away from the state and fish and game agencies to the significant detriment of hunters and sportsmen. Anti-hunting groups use the Endangered Species Act as a weapon, tying decision-making up in the courts to the detriment of animals and habitat. It goes on and on, but you can mm-hmm. pick up the drift here. And then you get into this very ironic happening in this case. And I guess but before we get to that, I want to read to you their uh, press release when they won this lawsuit in Wisconsin. They said, This week, Hunter Nation, along with the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, won our lawsuit against... By the way, I love the way these things are always named. They're named in the most pandering way. Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. <laughs> It's just like the Wisconsin Institute for Kitties and Ice Cream. Like, who could be against that? Who could be against law and liberty? Uh, <laughs> they won our lawsuit against the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources for ignoring a state law requirement to schedule a wolf hunt this winter. A Jefferson County Circuit Court found that the Wisconsin DNR violated state law by refusing to schedule a winter 2021 gray wolf hunt when the wolf was delisted from the Endangered Species Act on January 4th, 2001. This is a historic victory for Wisconsin hunters and our constitutionally protected right to hunt and manage our wildlife here in Wisconsin. The ruling finally provides clear direction to the administration in Wisconsin to move full speed ahead with our statutorily required wolf hunt. Um, And of course it goes on. But let me just point out the irony here and see what you think. The irony here is that the anti-hunter, according to Hunter Nation, is using the Endangered Species Act as a cudgel with which to beat the, the hunting and conservation world, right? They're using mm-hmm. it as a way to stop hunting, right? Mm-hmm. And this is widely documented with wolves and grizzly bears and the like. So what happens here is a pro-hunting group that believes in this, this idea that the ESA is being used by the people uh, on the other side rushes through a hunt to make sure that, that the ESA isn't turned over by the Biden administration. They rushed through this hunt and now the hunt itself is a mess and they have provided an even bigger cudgel for anti-hunters to now beat us with. Is <laughs> They've basically done the opposite of what they are attempting to yeah. do and what their mission states in terms of the Endangered Species Act. I know that's a complicated web with which to weave, but does that sound about right? I, I don't think it's all that complicated. I think it's... Um this really, if you're designing a way to to um, provide an argument in court that we cannot provide scientific management of our, of our wolf population in Wisconsin 
Well, we just we just did. We just created mm -hmm. a, a, a huge talking point, and but I can I can also argue that um, if this were, had had been left up just to just to biologists and wildlife managers and um, our hunter groups that are actually we have a hunter hunter organization in Wisconsin called the Wisconsin Conservation Congress, which is basically five guys, five people um, elected by elect, publicly elected to represent hunting interest in each county in the state, if it had been left up to that group, which is our traditional way of handling things, this wouldn't have happened. Um, mm -hmm. So now we have the situation, though, where every time I read about, um, I'd say a nationally article, nationally written article for like one of the national media, whether it's New York Times or the Gannett chain that has Milwaukee Journal in it, um, various the Associated Press, you read those articles, and they always, almost always, now have uh, spokesmen from the Humane Society of the United States, various mm -hmm. anti-hunting groups. Um, these, um, well, like the basically, I'd call it just the the Earth First type groups, all bashing away at this um, hunting season, the way it was carried out. So now we have that where this was not scientifically designed the way this thing was yeah. was, was enacted um to, to get into this and in the nuance of wisconsin politics you know we have a seven citizen natural resources board that sets policy for our wildlife agency the department of natural resources well during the the run-up to the season when it was dictated by courts that we hold a season one of the one of the board's members um basically set the um the directive to issue 20 times the quota for permits, hunting permits. And that was doubling the standard before, where in the first three seasons, Wisconsin issued 10 times the quota to get that harvest. Well, this time he went for 20 times. Mm -hmm. And I, I ran the numbers on, basically, when you get down to how many permits were sold for each wolf season we've had, all four wolf seasons. In the first three, um, when that actually came time to buy, buy hunting permits, we sold about seven permits for each wolf in the quota. This time we sold over 13 permits for each wolf in, the, in that in that quota. So we effectively doubled the hunting pressure compared to the first three seasons. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that, that changed a lot uh, from seven or eight years ago is that seven or eight years ago in Wisconsin, I think, I don't think, yeah, we did not start registering Year, for example, by by phone or computer until 2015, and so like when we last had had a wolf hunt, it was still um, showing up somewhere, getting it registered, and doing it that way. Well, now this season we could do it by by phone and computer, but yet we stuck with the old 24 hour timetable for registering it, you know, the, the wolf. So as a result, we ended up um, almost extending the day a full day of hunting. And trapping for wolves during this past season two weeks ago than we did the first three years. So it was, it was, there's so much nuance in this that given the, the, um, the way things were laid out this year with the delisting, the whole run-up to this fall, you really have a hard time looking at this and saying this was a scientifically driven model that we that yeah. we followed. Yeah, and that's that's it. I mean, Wisconsin was unable to whether – you know, this was forced by this this judge in this Hunter Nation lawsuit, or not really unable to manage this. Um, right. And that is that is it, I can't you can't overstate the like how big a black eye this is for 
the argument against the anti-hunting crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just can't under, underestimate. I mean, like you said, on a, on, a, on a smaller level, on a micro level, those two factors stand out. And you said this in your article, I think, mm-hmm. that, that allotted, like the DNR allotted a record percentage of kill permits, like you just mentioned, and then they gave license holders 24 hours to register their kill by phone. Well, of course, like, of course, um, you're not going to be able to get a, a count. And this was what, a three day ended up being a two or three day hunt. Ended up being a three day uh, hunt. Yeah. Three day hunt. Right. So you have a three day hunt. Well, let's say I'm a guy in, uh, writing for the New York times, which I would never be, but let's say I was, <laughs> and, I'm, and I don't know much about this. It is incredibly easy. It, the headline writes itself, right? Let's mm-hmm. just say then I take it a little bit further. I'm a, I'm a, a PR person for PETA. The headline there writes itself even easier. Bloodthirsty hunters, you know, slaughter wolves in two day, uh, you know, free for all. That's not managed. You know, it's it's not regulated, and and a lot of wolves died that didn't need to or weren't supposed to, based on mm-hmm. the allotment and the science. And I mean, that is, I mean, like I said, we've handed them the bat with which to hit us with here. We yeah, just really you, have. you've um. You left out the part about trophy hunter. They they really Oh, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Almost every time I saw anyone quoted from let's just say across the aisle, they always um marked this as a trophy hunt. Of and course. it's just standard procedure now. When you want to get yeah. when you want to make say something bad about hunting, you you put it down as a trophy hunt. Yeah. And this would have worked though if we would you think if we were rewind time. And the DNR would have gotten its way. They would have said, "Let's let's be transparent and deliberate. Let's make sure we bring in tribal leaders. Let's make sure we really think this through. Let's hold the hunt, say next winter, or you know, at some time in 2021 where it makes sense, where obviously it doesn't compete with other hunting seasons, and we can do it in a transparent and very safe and you know scientific way." Um, and they would have done what they did in the past seasons, which was hit the number by three or four wolves. You know, they would have been mm-hmm. two, three, four wolves over. Mm-hmm. This would have been a huge point of celebration for oh, gosh, those of us yeah. that believe in our model of conservation. Yeah, you, you you talk about a point swing. This this was it. We could have gone into um, if you would have just gone on, gone ahead and laid out a real deliberative approach, set up a season in November tweak some of the things we knew were going to change from, from this year and seven years before, then ruled the season out the way it had in the past where, you know, the way, the way we should, we should probably talk about the fact that in past seasons, um, this season, wolf season started with uh, hunt, just hunting with calls, hunting over um, a carcass, you know, in some kind of mm-hmm. wolf bait or else trapping. And so we had our first three years ran anywhere from like about, um, 42 days to maybe 58 days or something it was really a long mm-hmm. rollout. And, and we do not, we do not allow hunting with hounds for wolves until after our gun deer season ends in late November. So the first, first year we didn't have, um, the op- opportunity to use hounds for hunting. And then the, the next two years, by the time, um, hounds were allowed, um, much of the season already closed down because, the trappers had gotten the trappers dominated those first three years, and then this yeah. time around it was just the opposite. We had eighty six percent of the harvest two weeks ago come in th- through um, use of hounds, and only five percent from trapping. And it was, that's, that gets in the nuance too that um, 
yeah, you know, one thing I wanted to say too about the whole way the way media covers this is that you we cannot expect non-hunters, which is like ninety five percent of our population, to understand the nuance of hunting regulations. Yep. It's just our hunting regulations tend to be pretty involved. Um, so for them to understand the difference between um, hunting with with calls, trapping with um, like foothold traps and hunting wolves with hounds, these are such different practices that hunters are pretty well aware of them. But mm-hmm. even then, it's um, hound hunting is not something a lot, of, a lot of hunters have any direct experience with. So there's so much nuance here that can be so easily distorted and used in the wrong way against us that it, it was just, I keep thinking just what a wasted opportunity this was by letting this go forward, where it mm-hmm. now gave us a black guy instead of the the great um, example of what we could have achieved. Yeah, really. I mean, if you, if you, and going back to what you said, there was an article on March 3rd in the New York times. Um, it's not by me. That's weird. <laughs> by, <laughs> <laughs> Maria, <laughs> Maria Kramer or Kramer. And it just starts out by stating the facts. But then, as you said, quickly moves into, does take a whole lot of time to move right into that humane society, of the United States quote. Mm-hmm. So I'll read you a little bit of it. Okay. It said, hunters in Wisconsin killed more than 200 wolves this last week, far exceeding the state's limit as they scrambled to take advantage of Trump-era wildlife rules that they worry may be tightened by the Biden administration. So start start out by the lead, as we call it in the business. Yeah. Like the lead of this article, the thesis of this article, already begins in this kind of political muck. It yeah. begins with this this it connects it does it does takes no time in connecting hunters to the trump era and hunters to right wing politics and it quickly moves into the left wing opposition at least 216 wolves were killed in less than 60 hours exceeding the quota of 119 and prompting wisconsin to end what was meant to be a one week hunt 4 days early now it doesn't go anywhere in this into the nuance of of the actual number of 119 or anything like that. Right. Uh, again, it's too easy for somebody, for Maria, to start out this way. Uh, she mm-hmm. does get into the details later on, but it's, it's I mean, people stop reading. So it says, yeah. environment, environmentalists who fought unsuccessfully in state court to stop the hunt said the killings had occurred during breeding season when gray wolves are especially vulnerable. They said the large number of wolves killed in such a short time underscored the need for President Biden to put the gray wolf back on the list of animals protected under the Endangered Species Act. So, for everyone that was trying to um, tout delisting of wolves as a good thing, you have now given uh, the HSUS uh, an opportunity to say you were wrong, and in this case, um, they're not all that far off. Mm -hmm. They said these animals were killed using packs of dogs, snares, and leg hold traps. Kitty Block, chief executive of the Humane Society of the United States, said on Tuesday... It was a race to kill these animals in the most cruel ways. Uh, yeah. There um, we go. Yeah. And meanwhile, you know, one of the things I found interesting, I by, by coincidence, I had um, interviewed a woman um, <clears throat> on February 6th, and she's a, she's a huge trapper, a, a real gifted trapper. And mm. she had said back in February 6th, this is like two and a half weeks before the season unfolded, that if this season goes forward, she says, I'll be lucky if I can check my traps in two days, because for two days, that the season probably be over within two days, because she just knew that um, 
you know, when you get, when you get um, hounds out there hunting with, if you have good tracking snow, mm-hmm. um, we have a really good, we have a good number of people in the state who enjoy hunting bears, enjoy hunting bobcats and coyotes with, with hounds. Now, personally, right. I have a real hard time criticizing houndsmen because I think if I were into hounds, I'd be doing the same thing. I love uh, it. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm right I, there I with think, you. I don't do it, but I love it. I think the sound of, of hounds baying, whether it's whether they're baying, those beagles baying on rabbits or um, or uh, or hounds baying on raccoons, I think I think it's exciting as hell. I'm, I I cannot sit there and act like we shall be saying, well, it's okay to hunt raccoons with hounds, or it's okay to hunt rabbits with beagles, but damn it, we can't do this on bears and and and, and wolves or bobcats. So. I have a hard time with that one. I'm kind yeah. of rambling now a little bit, but it, it, it um, I, I just found that when, when this thing was, was being planned, a lot of trappers were not planned to take part in February because th- their trappers tend to be more, much more tuned into the fur, the fur quality. And sure. everything I was hearing from the trappers in Wisconsin, the guys I know was they're going to pass up the chance and just go ahead and buy apply for a, um, a preference point for the fall hunt and let the, the houndsmen have, have their season to kind of just take a pass on this because they, they knew that basically the, the, fur, the, fur, the fur quality for a wolf peaks in December and then starts going downhill. And by late February, it's not a, a high-quality pelt anymore. It's getting matted. Get, um, the underfur is kind of getting loose, all that kind of stuff. Right. So they were kind of taking a pass anyway. But still, when you when you saw the kind of numbers we we're talking about for how many permits are going to be pushed out there, how many hunters can be pushed out there, the people who are really tuned into this were predicting before the hunt started that this is not going to go well. This is going to going to be a, a well yeah. a cluster, you know, a cluster F, and <laughs> it, it sure was. Yeah, yeah, and it. it- Man, there's this this thing. There's so much baked into this too. But you just like I said, you just know what what it's gonna look like. Um, and and look, I I don't disagree. I mean, if you look at some of the the language around some of the climate change legislation that President Biden had in, in the works, and and Hunter Nation points this out, and I, I'm not saying I disagree with it. That the the worry was that the DNR was going to delay this, and then anti hunting and animal rights groups would get in. And then cancel the hunt, right? So mm-hmm. by the time the hunt would take place, they would just throw the political football back across the field, and and the hunt wouldn't take place. But that I think just underscores the danger of making these decisions based on these political agendas. Making wolf hunting in Wisconsin a political football to throw back and forth um, yeah. during a camp during a presidential campaign, and then you know close following afterwards. Um, turning these things into not very deliberate and, and, and very thought out um, ecological and biological benefits to these populations, as we as you know, if Shane Mahoney was here, he might say it that way. <laughs> he would say uh-huh. more eloqu- eloquently than that. But um, turning this into political football has led to where we are. You know, do you think there's yeah. any way to turn that off? Is there any way to just try to find a way to manage wolves and other? Uh, I would say, like controversial uh, species on the landscape in a way. Sage grouse are also this way. It doesn't have to be a predator. Mm-hmm. Um, 
is there a way to turn this off or at the very least guard against this type of uh, manipulation of what should have been a very scientific conservation decision? Yeah, you know, you would hope that um, when this, because this will, you know, there's court, two court cases out there already before the before this even happened that they're fighting the the um, the delisting. So you know it's going to end up in court in front of a judge at some point. And I still think um, lawyers, a good smart lawyer with um, good wildlife um, managers helping him out and design the case can still make a very strong argument that, um, hey, look, we know what we're doing. We've proven this in the past. This is not a good a good example of what, what we're capable of. Here's here's what we have done in the past and done it very well, not just um, Wisconsin, but also Minnesota and Michigan when they had their seasons. So we still have an overall strong, very strong record for controlling the wolf harvest and and getting and um basically rolling it out again the next time in a real responsible manner. But so this was really the outlier. This this season here was nothing yeah. like anything else we've seen before. And unfortunately, um, the way it came out so fast that the people we were really counting on to um, bring some sanity to the process. In my column, I, I criticized our, our top brass and our, our Department of Natural Resources because I thought this was, you should have spoken up while you could. And once, once this thing has passed, yeah. you can't just go back and, and rewrite things. You sat there mute while they were debating some of these questions, like how many permits to put out there, did not say a word. And that was that really um, will hurt our case when it comes to well, right. why didn't you speak up? And so, yeah. I, but to answer your question, Ben, I think we can still make a good argument, but we sure didn't make it easy. Now we really yeah. have to argue from behind. Yeah, you do, and this is such a critical point. And I mean, I don't, I don't know. There's there's a point that this this will ever calm down like the boiling point will be taken down but this this is with a new administration you know and we've seen these we've seen these political footballs go back and forth before to the detriment of what we're talking about and this happened with grand staircase escalante and bears ears to the detriment of the landscape and in this case a species uh, and its overall conservation efforts Anytime these things become these political footballs, it's to the detriment to the people on the ground. It never works out for the people managing the landscapes or managing the wildlife. It just never does. Mm-hmm. And um, it, 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 it's hard to understand, you know, connecting the macro and the micro. Um, and it takes, I think, good writing and good journalism, as you've done, to really make those connections. How is this now going to be harder going forward to the people that so enjoyed this hunt, you know? Because it's okay yeah. to enjoy a wolf hunt i don't have a problem with somebody showing the wolves that they killed on social media or talking about it but again everyone needs to understand that we're we're in a very political and very socially charged environment and everything we do has to be grounded in uh the things we say we're for yeah you know so that's a tough one O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. 
They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Pay attention here because this is a hell of a good service. It's called the Wellness Company. Picture this, okay? You wake up, you got a scratchy throat, you're all congested, you got a runny nose, you got a cough, whatever. And you weigh your options like you tough it out, get sick, take time off work, try to get a doctor's appointment sometime in the next few months, wait two hours at urgent care and sit in a room full of sick, sick folks, or you open your medical emergency kit. You match your symptoms to the doctor-recommended prescription, and you start on the right meds right away. These medical emergency kits, not a first aid kit, all right? It comes with doctor-prescribed meds to treat over 39 medical issues. So, on hand, strong antibiotics for infections of all types. Plus, a doctor's easy guide so you know exactly what to take and when. No waiting to see the doctor. No waiting at the pharmacy. It's all in there. Every home should have at least one medical emergency kit. Order yours online in minutes. Your kit will be rushed to your door. Get 15% off at twc.health slash meat eater, but you got to use the promo code meat eater. That's promo code meat eater, okay, at twc.health slash meat eater. You ever get that feeling you're stuck inside staring at screens and a primal urge kicks in? You crave wide open spaces, fresh air, the chance to connect with the land. Well, maybe it's time to find your own piece of the wild, but searching for property can be a maze. That's where land.com comes in. They got millions of listings across the country, from mountain ranches to hidden fishing holes. Their search tools are like a seasoned guide helping you narrow down what you want. Land.com isn't just about buying and selling. It's about finding a place to hunt, fish, explore, or simply sit by a campfire and listen to the crickets. So head over to land.com today to turn one day into today. Because trust me, there's nothing quite like the feeling of standing on your own piece of earth. I don't think you and I have talked about, but I know I've. it's been part of my um, career, um, basically going back into the early 80s, that I've always been fascinated by the fact that you can show... Um, a person holding a, a deer, a nice buck, um, or a person holding up a couple of geese they shot, whatever it might be. But boy, I, I remember in my newspaper days back in the mid-80s, the first time I showed a guy holding up a coyote or holding up a red fox by its hind legs um, for a winter predator hunt, God, people just go freaking nuts. And Amen. there's something about shooting a canid that really – does not yeah. set well with a lot of people. And that's yeah. not, I don't think we can ever, um, so quote unquote, educate people out of that. I think it's something that's just in us as, as humans that um, a lot of people really identify with um, something that, that resembles what runs around their house. 
I think it's why we have problems with uh, mountain lion hunts and why we have problems with, with wolf hunts and, and, and coyote hunts. It's just always something that people just, so many people are so connected to those, those animals. So it's, it's tough stuff when you get in the, into the emotional side of, of these arguments. Yeah. It's really, like you said, it's, it's an emotional topic for people and, and that's not something we can, we can discount as hunters. We can't say, well, don't get emotional about this. All right. You know, facts don't care about your feelings. You're never going to get, if you start talking like that, you're never going to get anywhere. Um, you're just going to create a wall between you and the person who you'd like to understand you. Um, and that's where, and I think this, this situation is certainly put up a larger barrier. I mean, we Mm -hmm. certainly can stand behind that barrier and say how great it is that there's 200 less wolves and that's going to help the overall population dynamics. And that, uh, we're celebrating, you know, traditional way methods to take like hound hunting and other things. We can say all those things and we're probably right. But at the end of the day, um, it only matters what people think about it, you mm-hmm. know, and only really, and as we've seen with this, it really only matters what society at large thinks is good or bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's, if we get off that track, then you come, you're just arguing with yourself or you're congratulating yourself and everybody else over there at New York Times land and New York Times has, has been known to write about hipster hunters and mm-hmm. the field to table movement. They've been known to write about, you know, Kuyu putting sheep back on the mountain. Like that it's not that they're completely against highlighting what's positive here. Mm-hmm. Um, but they'll certainly jump all over it when the negative like this yeah. you know, perpetuates. Yeah. yeah. And if, and I can guarantee if you, um, if, uh, I, I would, I shouldn't say guarantee, I'd be willing to, to bet that if, if a New York Times reporter were to show up and I could arrange them to go um, hound hunting with some houndsmen here in Wisconsin for bobcat up north about the same mm-hmm. time of year, actually it'd be early in, early in the winter, uh, it'd be a, pretty much a solitary hunt where you have one or two trucks involved with their hounds and they'd probably come away fairly impressed with how these guys operate. Because it's it's not a guarantee. It's a it's a tough can be a real tough slug out there staying after these hounds in in, in um, northern Wisconsin's deep forests. So, that, but the, yeah, this case where um, we had so many um, trucks out there with with houndsmen, and such it, it was times where you just saw like uh, three or four trucks, five trucks in some cases, on some of these rural forest roads it really upset some people who were, you know, kind of on the fence about it. On the other hand, there's other people driving by who deal with wolves. They live in wolf country. They've had pets killed by wolves, livestock killed by wolves. They go by these same guys and give them a thumbs up. And so you really get these interesting perspectives on um, the Wisconsin landscape. To, To go back to our earlier discussion about what's the average hunter, well, I'd say there's a lot of hunters in Wisconsin who are probably really vocally condemning this hunt right now. And it's just jumping to conclusions about that was just a, a poor, that they're blaming the hound hunters for everything. And then there's, but there are some things I think we need to look at. And one of them is um, how quickly the successful hunters registered their, their, their wolves. Yeah. I mean, by, by some appearances, by some reports, talking to retired wardens, I know. There, there were some pretty, pretty. Um, I think nothing like it's one of those cases where I'm not going to quote anybody because nobody would go on sure. the record. But I really got the impression there was some stuff going on out there where uh, either on social media or through the um, 
uh, two-way radios, encouraging each other not to register the wolf until you had, uh, you know, basically right down to last minute. So you had this big delay in registration that almost was a full day delay that delayed the season and it ran the season out a day beyond where it should have been. So there there are some things that we gave ourselves a black eye on. It's not just all on the political front. It was on our, our own individual decisions, too, that could have been better. We could have been uh, saying that I don't want to take a chance of something getting, getting out of hand here, being a part of that. And unfortunately, yeah. a lot of guys did. Yeah, I heard, I've heard so many rumors and read so many things about this hunt that I, like, I hesitate. I'll just tell you some of the more crazy ones. I heard that people were had frozen wolves in their freezer that they had shot years ago oh, and they were yeah, getting yeah. them out and checking them in and you, know, you hear all kinds of crazy things i have no idea if that's true i wasn't there i have you know i haven't seen any proof of any kind of these crazy allegations about how the hunt went down but i mean i always say on this and we've, we've talked about wolves here before where i i when you start talking about wolves on a landscape and we talked about this in the colorado ballot box biology mm-hmm. yeah um case you know i some weeks back here i i i try to understand like i can understand that ranchers landowners the people that are really affected by these wolves in like rural and and suburban situations even i think probably in wisconsin like there's two different parts of the state as you mentioned and one of them has wolves and and a lot a lot of these parts don't even have them um Mm -hmm. and so i do when we're, we're talking about this and how to regulate it and how to think about it, I do understand each side of the fence. You know, you understand the the more urban side in Wisconsin where you might be thinking like, why would you kill a wolf? And then you go talk to, all you'd have to do is take that person and introduce them to a rancher or a farmer and says, this is why you kill a wolf. Look mm-hmm. over here. I'll tell you, they're killing my sheep. They're doing this. They're doing that. They're impacting my life negatively. Um, and so I always look at it both ways. I understand both. I side with the rancher. I want that rancher to have that tool to to manage those those that predation. I've seen it even here in Montana, uh, right close to my house, where uh, I have show camera footage of wolves taking down some guy's cattle. Right. You know, and the the USDA APHIS trappers have to come in and kill the wolf anyway. So it's a it's a complicated mix. And as you as you mentioned, um, it's delicate, and we need to treat it as such. You know, mm-hmm. we need to treat this as a delicate situation, not one to be rammed through, um, so we feel yeah. good about getting what we wanted. Yeah, I, I um, I remember in college, at well, back in my Navy days, I took a um, a, a psychology class, and one of these college classes you could take, um, um, when your ship's deployed to get college credit. And I remember this professor saying that in almost all aspects of human behaviors, human attitudes, about 70% of us fall right in the middle. We can we, we can listen to arguments and basically we'll always end up somewhere in that 70% in the middle. Then you have 15% out on a one fringe and 15% on the other fringe. And no matter what you tell those f- folks, they're going to stay where they are. They're not going to budge. Well, mm-hmm. when it comes to wolves, I think um, most of us, most of the people I've dealt with in my in my career when you explain some of the nuance to them that, that they've not really un, been part of before, most of them, I think, can will start understand that it's not as it's not as, maybe as easy as they once thought it was to break this down and, and uh, figure it all out. But when you um, have something like this happen and you see headlines that say something like the headline I saw a number of times in Wisconsin was that hunters kill one fifth of the Wisconsin wolf population. 
And I think, well, yeah, based on estimates, that's about right. But um, the, the bigger question is, well, was anything harmed biologically? No. Mm-hmm. But then you go back to, but <laughs> bio- <laughs> biologically, no harm. Sociologically, huge harm. Huge harm. Yeah. And, and so, but for hunters, by the same token, to act like because there was no biological harm, therefore no harm, I think that's that's just not realistic. That's not how we operate in a free society where we debate these things. We have to um, uh, fight our way through lots of information, lots of different perspectives to come to some some kind of agreement. But you can't. My one of my little things in life is that you can't force love. You can't force understanding. It has to come um, yeah. on its own. And this is one where I think. This one was really forced down the throats of the non-hunting public, even a lot of the hunting public, to the point where we now we have ourselves back in the corner we did not need to be in. Yeah, that's a beautiful sentiment, man. You can't force understanding and can't force love. I mean, that's that's it. You can't, you know. And in this case, it's it. It almost seems like you know, on a political level, and I'll just go ahead and say it. I think Hunter Nation is clearly a like a Republican, a right wing group. I mean, I think mm-hmm. they don't say it outright, but I mean, if you look at who right. they are and what they do, that's what they—that's what they are. Um, and that's okay. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, I'm just saying it's a politically driven advocacy organization, and that is is very dangerous um, in and of itself within the hunting space. Mm-hmm. I feel. And again, there's always to take it to the opposite. There's people that would charge uh, groups like BHA for being a left wing, politically motivated mm-hmm. uh, organization. I know that not to be true just based on my, you know, my time working with them, but those ideas that we would we would allow those um forces in our space to to work this way, to try to get wins for their side um is is kind of the antithesis of what you just mentioned there because now we're not we're trying to get wins and we're not talking about understanding and then we're not talking about what we can do to win that sociological mm-hmm. battle that's out there because really the war is for people's attention right the war is for people to like just pay attention to us for a minute so we can explain ourselves that's all that's mm-hmm. the that's what yeah. the, the overall battle is here um and the every point like this that's going to get raised to a more popular culture level is another chance for us to get people's attention yeah. in a way that's positive yeah i um I guess if I had my um, big wish right now, and I had the same wish nine years ago, was that when in 2012, when a Republican lawmaker in Wisconsin named um, Souter um, made this made the legislation that is now our law, we have a wolf hunt starting. Um, well, now it would start in early November and run till um, we hit our quota, or else hit late February. Well, typically we never made it out of December. My my wish all along this this past year was that that someone in our Republican Party in Wisconsin, which controls the legislature, controls both houses of our legislature, our Senate and our Assembly, that that some Republican would step forward step forward and say, <clears throat> "This is not good precedent to have uh, a wolf hunting season set by state statute. This should be yeah. in the administrative rules process." That's and it guarantees a lot more discussion publicly among all the different advocacy groups and then come to us with your final um, season proposals and we'll weigh in then. 
but we're not going to write this for you. You got to do it yourself. And so we had this law, put it back out there where it part, becomes part of the, the wildlife agency's responsibility to make sure we have a, a good sound hearing on this and not, not make it just where you, where you go, to, go to one judge and get this thing enacted like this. Yeah. And I, we see that all over the country. We did a little bad bill roundup. Was well, not a bad bill, but a bill roundup here of new state legislature bills that are being passed um, all over the country. And here mm-hmm. in Montana, I think we had some kind of fifty-eight. I don't. I have a number in front of me, but it, over fifty bills in legislature in since uh, <clears throat> the beginning of the legislative session yeah. here. So yeah. you you elect a new body um, that's dominated by one party or the other, and they're all immediately. Uh, enacting their agenda and and again they're elected for a reason they Mm -hmm. you know you campaign on an agenda so i'm not saying that's a bad thing but it is what it is i think is a time to have this heightened sensibility as to what's right and what's wrong right right and and in this case we kind of fell flat in it um Mm -hmm. but it's it's i i do think you know that this is how the political process works but as hunters and anglers this is you know we need to start getting back on this understanding that these are the times when things can go wrong when we have you know the political process plays out in this very aggressive way and then we're settling into the new world and we're starting to pass we want to pass 50 new bills to to reshape the way you Mm -hmm. know in in montana like elk tags are allotted and uh, non-resident tags are allotted and how public land access is used and, Mm -hmm. and block management and all of this starts to change and you start to see the sides kind of crystallize this is just if you have a vested interest. This is time to be aggressive and be calling um, your state legislature, calling your representatives and just telling them, I get, I mean, you guys were voted in, you're doing your job. We understand that, but this is the belief that we have, you mm-hmm. know, and that's where BHA comes in. That's where all these groups come in that you can jump on the TRCP, uh, RMEF in this case, uh, probably not for Wisconsin, but there's probably not Wild Chief Foundation either. Um, but you can get on this, you can get on the track where you can be involved in something like this and can understand like when are the heightened times that the conversation needs to be, you know, pushed forward. Um, and maybe this won't happen next time. Well, one of the, I think, um, one thing I've been really proud of in Wisconsin for many years was that back in the thirties and forties, um, you know, we had, we had all the Leopold here in our state and we, People should always realize that even although Leopold did not always prevail in his thinking, he fought a lot of political battles that he lost in Wisconsin, especially on deer management. But um, through that process in the 40s, our legislature must have had some very smart people because they they finally got sick of our deer wars back in the early 40s. We were always fighting about mm-hmm. deer management. And Leopold was leading these these um basically bus trips up to Wisconsin's deer yards and showing what happens when you have an overpopulated deer herd. I think eventually our, our lawmakers realized, you know, this is way too much minutia for us to, to handle. We're going to turn this over to the, to our conservation department, let them fight with the, with the hunters and the, and the non-hunters, let them come up with some solutions here, then bring it back for our final review. And then we'll either, either uh, make them modify it some more or we'll check off on it. And that system worked really well for close to 60 years where things weren't perfect. We still fought all the time. We still argue all the time because, as I always say, deer make people stupid. So we always fight about these things. <laughs> and 
But then in, in, in the past um, 20 years, but especially the last 10, 12 years, we really went down this terrible route where lawmakers, it makes, they, made it, they make a good argument for um, lim- limiting terms and also um, limiting the amount of time they can actually get together and, and pass laws. And make, we should make them part-time people again because to have the time on their hands to go in there and mess with a wolf season like this and impose a wolf season that can be so easily then taken into court and enforced through in this, in this process it was, it shows you we've swung too far away again back into this idea where the legislature is doing everything. And, and then yeah. I, think we're, I think we've shown that that system, we have to go back and put this more in the, in the scientific um, management again. Yeah. And there's nothing, there's nothing I'd like more as, you know, like I said, a proponent of wolf hunting than to have the conversation based on the science for somebody yeah. to come to me and be like, Hey, listen, right. we're not hunting wolves. And here's why here's the science. Um, I just got finished reading, uh, Shane Mahoney and Valerius Geis book. Uh, it's not really titled very well. It's called the North American model of wildlife conservation. That's the book title. <laughs> it's not very intriguing, but it's descriptive. Right. Um, I've, it's the third time I've read it because every time I read it, I kind of look at the lens of where we are right now. And it, and if you start to understand the failings of the model, uh, our model of conservation, it's when, just like you said, it's when we, we kind of stray away from, whether it be by ballot box or by state legislature in this case, really looking at not not the different parties and different stakeholders involved, but starting with the science. Like, what's the science of wildlife biology t- say? Then once we get to where we really know we want to be, then we can let kind of the social and political factors come into play mm-hmm. and maybe help us shape a little bit of how we deliver what the science is telling us to do or how we manage what the science is telling us to do. Not the other way around. You can't do mm-hmm. it based on political needs and then the, uh, re-engineer the science like in this case. Um, it's going to seem disingenuous because it is disingenuous mm-hmm. uh, in a lot of ways. So it's, um, I mean, it's, it's, I guess it's just part of what we do, Pat. <laughs> it's, like, it's just like part of being in this uh, community and like understanding that you're going to win some and you're going to lose some and yeah. almost every, every win and loss that are complex and have a lot of rights mm-hmm. and a lot of wrongs baked in. Cause I think this situation, there's plenty that was done right uh, like you said, if you're just if you're just putting a, a tally on the board, it's not the worst thing in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't really impact wolf populations, but um, that's not where it ends. So, no. I, you know, no. I imagine we'll c- continue to have these these right. issues. Oh, right, and and I, I I always say, Ben, I'm a Wisconsin chauvinist. I'm also a, a hunting and North American model chauvinist. I really do believe. Yeah. We have good systems in place. We have smart people. We have smart people in our history, and I really believe. And I really believe overall that if you have um, nice, respectful conversations, you might be arguing, but they're still respectful. And you're and you're marshaling information and deploying it in a in a, in a good strategic way that's providing people you know input from both sides. I think we can have really a great system here but when it comes down to where we have to win the argument and dominate the argument and and um basically demonize people who don't see things the way we do and make this uh, um right left um liberal conservative argument i really like to think that in the course of, of american history 
we've done better than that. You know, we found we, we can do better than this. And I, I really am, am kind of surprised so, so many times that people think we have to win. And I think, no, politics is not about, at least it shouldn't be about winning. It should be about yeah. doing what's best for, for, the, for the American public. And yeah. our, our traditions, all these kind of things that I hold dear and you hold dear, and I think most Americans do. And But I, I don't like this idea of um, intimidating people into um, making them basically conform to what we think is right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's so much of it there. I, like, I have – I don't want to say – I'm not going to say I have a dream, but I do. Uh, I have a dream, and I like I wish – I think the best conversation I could have, if we could take like a consumptive and a non-consumptive user, in this case, say a hunter or an angler and an animal rights uh, activist or, or somebody who believes in animal rights, have each of them put together a model of conservation. Of course, we could just be like, well, we got one already. Mm-hmm. Why don't you put one together? <laughs> right. So the, and the animal rights community puts together a model of conservation as in-depth um, as, as the one we currently have that was worked out by Mahoney and Geist back in the 80s, articulated back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then we could put them next to each other and have a good conversation. We could go tenant by tenant, issue by issue, and try to apply their one model versus the other. And maybe you, you get to some sort of like combined model that takes both of these insights and perspectives and ideologies into, into account when we're building these things out so we don't have to punch each other. Yeah and beat each other over the yep. head with, with our victories and losses. And, and so I'm going to find, I'm find a real smart animal rights person that can, that can read the North American model of wildlife conservation, understand its faults and, and where it succeeded. Mm-hmm. And then say like, now here's a world where we're not killing them. And here's how we're going to make this work. You mm-hmm. know? And, and I'm, ha- I think I'd love to have that conversation and stop just saying you're wrong and I'm right and here's why. Well, I'd like to see it written down. So maybe, yeah. maybe some animal rights person is listening to this. They can start working on it. Might take them a while, <laughs> but uh, that's what I'd love to see because I yeah. uh, finally we'd be get after the heart of the matter. We would get mm-hmm. to the heart of is your way better for wolves or is our way better for wolves? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but for, but for now we're too far separated. Oh yeah, and like we um. We we had a, a panel discussion a few years ago in Wisconsin at one of our, our our outdoor communicators thing, and we invited in a houndsman, we invited in uh, a wolf advocate, and we had a real real good hour hour and a half discussion, and we basically got to the point where we um, we realized that no matter what we do as far as hound hunting, that we'll never get the um, the the wolf advocate to ever agree that that's a good way to hunt wolves, but she she didn't want any kind of hunting trapping period, but but at least um, she got to hear from a, an actual houndsman how they go about hunting wolves and and why it isn't always this dog fighting that they're portraying and and I thought it was a I, I felt a healthy discussion and I, and I think when you get into the one one of the um, points. Uh, Steve Rinella makes quite often, which holds up for the whole wolf argument, is that you know Steve points out that you know, if you just say that um, wolves haven't recovered 100% of their range, well then, well then you got to also point out that elk have only recovered about 10, 10 11% of their range. So where do you draw this line? And and here in Wisconsin, it's pretty clear where um, the wolf, the line's being drawn. We have wherever we have 
big forest, we have a wolf, po- a wolf population. We have a central forest in Wisconsin with a decent wolf population. Then they're also up north. But then once you get out of that area, you get these stragglers and these dispersers that don't really make it. This really isn't a good environment for them. But I think now in, um, in Wisconsin, we've, we've gone from back in the 80s where we thought back then the best available science in the 1980s was that we'd be lucky to get 100 wolves reestablished in Wisconsin. And they, you know, they started trickling back in here in the, in the 1980s and it was um, kind of fits and jerks. And eventually they thought, well, we can probably hold 100 wolves in the state. Then by the year 2000, we, we were thinking the best available science was that well, we'll probably cap off around 350. Well, now we are here in 2021, and the best available science is now showing, well, actually, these wolves are more adaptable than we realized. We learned something. We can now have at least 1,200 wolves here. And it's, you know, and that's, and that, but, it is, but now we're co- seeing consistent problems with um, pets being killed, livestock being killed. And, mm-hmm. and so I think the average person could, could understand that, well, if you have a wolf hunt that's well-regulated, Chances are you're going to knock off the wolves that are most likely to be close to people, hanging out in people's um, at, at the edge of people's um, barnyards and, and, and fields. And those will be a little more susceptible because they've gotten too close to humans, and so we'll probably be able to get them. So, but you have these nuanced discussions. We really we are capable of doing that, and that's why I think in this case I I felt like. Man, you guys are not giving the American people, the Wisconsin people, enough credit here. You've got to realize we have unique situations. You can't compare um, Wisconsin wolf hunting with Montana wolf hunting. I mean, Wisconsin's forest is pretty well divided up, but lots of um, trails and, 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 and um, roads that you can get a truck down. Whereas vast areas of the, of the West, you do not have that. You cannot put the number of hunters into some of those Western landscapes that you can here in Wisconsin. So this is these are all tied together and and but also different. But but you you try to tell me that the average New York Times reporter understands those that kind of nuance? No, and you, and no. you can't really expect them to if they're only going to cover that story once a year and not be pounding on that beat year in year out. Yeah, and the, for, yeah, the first quote in the story is going to be from HSUS, right? And yeah. the HSUS yeah. isn't going to say, you know what, you know what, what's different. You know, ecological needs are different. And, you know, I was reading about the North American Wildlife Wildlife Conservation. One of the key tenets is that science and biology managed on a state level is going to really get us to the populations that we need. That's not going to happen. And it's never going to happen unless you push it. Um, But I do think there – I think you're 100% right. Um, We just have to – we have to find a way to to learn from this particular one and move Mm -hmm. on. And – I don't like to get, I'm not very argumentative anymore <laughs> online, <laughs> but I, I think on this one, I would be pretty argumentative if I saw somebody and I haven't, I'm not saying I've seen this. I, I don't spend a whole lot of time there anymore, but if I saw somebody online and it, it, I guess if you're listening to this podcast, I, I, I hesitate, I hesitate, but I will encourage you to address this directly. If someone is celebrating this wolf hunt, in a way is to say like, we won, you know, whether they're a Trump supporter or they're not, or, you know, they're Republican or Democrat, it doesn't matter. If they're um, celebrating this wolf hunt in a way that we beat the anti-hunters, it's time to have, like, I would have a direct conversation with them to say, uh, 
no. <laughs> I mean, it would start by saying yes and no, but here's the big <laughs> no on this one. Um, and I think that's important for our community to be able to, to be that honest and, and with ourselves and with other people around us to say, let's talk, let's educate each other, and let's not uh, let's not do this. Let's not have <laughs> this, this celebratory mindset um, because we got to kill some wolves in Wisconsin. And, and quite honestly, most people that would be celebrating it, uh, including Hunter Nation, they don't know the, the politics like you do and the socioeconomic needs. And, and again, I mean, we might say, hey, you could either pay on a federal level, APHIS, or pay on a state level or on a municipality level to control these problem wolves, or you could have hunters do it, as you mentioned, and they'll pay you for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of hunters, I don't, what, what was the number of, of tags sold? I mean, all of that is revenue for the state. Right. Yeah. And so you have this idea where, where so many of the things that we value are working. Um, especially, you know, if you, if you're just getting your checkbook out here, uh, and balancing it, this is a, a, a very positive thing as, as opposed to, you know, financially what would be a negative thing, uh, having state and federal governments have to manage this and, and mm-hmm. pay people to go and, uh, control predation so boy it's it's a fun one but i mean i don't think there's anybody better to talk about it than you pat i appreciate um i appreciate your your stance on this and i appreciate you you talking about love and understanding in this case because it as trite as it may sound it's a hundred percent right like it it just really is thank um, you yeah and I, I love it so you can go read pat uh Patrick Durkin outdoors.com. If you go to his blog, he's got an article there all about this. Um, Wisconsin's wolf over harvest was predictable and preventable. There's all kinds of other stuff. So you're posting there weekly, right, Pat? Yeah, weekly. And um, as you know, Ben, you guys have been letting me write for you now for almost three years. And and we see it the other way around. Yeah. You let us publish your material. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you're doing bi-weekly on the mediator.com still. Right. These right. days. Yeah. yeah, so you can every other week Pat's got a thing on the meateater.com. His last article was about the the death of of the deer camp. Uh, right. I love that one, so I can't Thank wait. You. What's your next what's the next piece you're working on? The piece I'll be submitting to to you guys today is um after you and I get off the phone, I'm wrapping up an article I wrote on on um Davy Crockett. And mm-hmm. I've I've been one of these um Davy Crockett fans since I was a little, little boy. And always loved the fact that he was this big hunter, but also um, was always fascinated by um, the stories of his death at the Alamo. And that's kind of what I'm, what I'm well, that's actually what I'm writing about is, did, he, did Davy Crockett go down swinging? And that's always this um, interesting historical debate that will never, that will never end and will never solve it. And yet we, um, we enjoy fighting about it and, you watch the hissy fits that have happened in our country the last, oh, especially basically since Disney's movie came out about Davy yeah. Crockett um, a year before I was born. And that's what I'm writing about. And that's one thing I, I have to say I really enjoy about writing with for Meat Eater and working with you guys, bouncing ideas around, is that it isn't just um, how-to hunting stuff. It's um, I think we get into the whole hunting culture are why um, people like Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone resonate with us all these years later. Um, one of my articles I really enjoy writing for you guys was about Jeremiah Johnson, the, the Jer- Jeremiah Johnson movie. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's, I, I just find um, 
those kind of stories resonate not just with hunters, but but um, a much bigger audience. And I figure if, if we can find ways to um, not suck other people in, but just intrigue them to show them that hunting is a little more um, deep and part of our culture than I think sometimes we, we um, think about these days. I, I like the fact that Meat Eater lets me write about it because I can tell mm-hmm. you as a, as a career outdoor writer now going on f- almost 40 years that many hunting markets, you know, whether it's magazines or whatever it might be, um, don't touch that stuff. Whereas mm-hmm. Meat Eater does explore those topics and give you a little more freedom to explore topics that other people don't. Well, I'll tell, I'll tell the guys if you're a little bit late, uh, if you're if you miss your deadline, you can blame it on me. Oh, I already <laughs> I have. Okay, good. <laughs> oh, Brian's oh, Brian's fault. <laughs> uh, well, I like I said earlier, man. It's it's we have very brief moments of attention for people that don't do what we do, and, and hopefully, yeah. articles that you write and the thing and the work that you produce, you work so hard on. You know, people can see it, and those brief moments where we get their attention, they can be informed and kind of you know, take a, a, a small step forward into understanding what we do. And I don't know if we'll ever get to really track how we're doing on that. Uh-huh. I don't think there'll ever be data that, but it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a, it's work we'll continue to do even mm-hmm. if we, we can't see the, the trees or the forest through the trees. We're just going to keep on going. So, well, uh, we appreciate you and people you should, then. if you're not reading Pat Durkin, shame on you, you bastards get to it. <laughs> Pat, thank you so much. Thanks, Ben. Good talking to you. That's it. That's all. Another episode in the books. Thank you to Pat Durkin, one of my favorite writers, one of my favorite people. Uh, <laughs> it's just it's good to catch up with the guys. It's funny in our in our space. We're so busy. That's somebody like Pat, I very rarely get to talk to him and catch up with him. And so podcasting with him is one of the only ways we get to spend time together. And I uh, appreciate him so much. I find myself uh, falling into those those conversations just as somebody who likes to hear from somebody he really respects and, and hopes he can call a friend. So it's good to have Pat around always. And we'll certainly keep you guys updated on the Wisconsin wolf hunt and kind of the the fissures in the landscape and some of the aftershocks from the earthquake as it were to, to see where this takes us. But it is, um, it's an interesting story and it happened right under our noses and, um, it took and took until it went, uh, it became even more controversial or in my opinion, it went wrong for us to really focus on it. So next time we'd be a little more proactive in discussing it. Um, but again, Pat did a great job in reporting on it. He has the experience that we needed to hear from, and he, he cares about you know the fabric of the community around Wisconsin and places he lives, in, and he knows the people. So it was uh, important and good. I'm glad to have it with old Pat. Thank you, Pat. Uh, so just to reiterate before we go, um, if you want to be a leader, THC Regional Chapter, let me know, THC at TheMeteor.com. Let me know where you live, what you, what's your interest, whether you would be a mentor or mentee, uh, whether you got a lot of time to spend, whether you want to be a part of uh, the group we put together. So uh, just as a, a quick aside, Phil, um, if you're out there, stop. don't create any more Facebook pages. <laughs> we <laughs> we got to walk that back. 
Uh, we don't want to have like a random, so many random Facebook pages, but I appreciate all the effort that went into just creating those on our, our behalf. We got to get our arms around this thing here, people, and uh, figure out what we're going to do. So we're committed to that. Phil especially is committed to that. And um, we're just about two months out from Phil's first hunting experience. So maybe by the time he gets out in the woods for the first time, we'll have a, a robust group of chapters that can share in his adulation of his hunting success. Okay, Phil? Sounds great. All right, say bye to the people. Goodbye, people. Because I can't go a week without doing wrong. Oh, without doing After three years of work, our follow-up to the Meat Eater Fish and Game Cookbook is here. It's the Meat Eater Outdoor Cookbook, wild game recipes for the grill, smoker, campfire, and camp stove. Here is your book for everything that's best cooked or eaten outside, from grilling to open fire cooking to Dutch ovens to smokers to barbecue to backpacking meals to how to pull off the perfect fish fry with pit stops along the way for lessons about Ice Age cooking methods and the best five ways to construct a cooking fire you can be proud of. And of course, we're focusing on wild game and fish here with over 100 recipes, including stuffed venison burgers three ways, wild duck with ahi verde sauce, a jerky made with cola, a gin and tonic made with fire-charred lemons, and grilled frog legs made with a sticky sweet sauce. This ain't your normal cookbook, so be prepared to be surprised. Get your copy now. For more info, visit TheMeatEater.com or buy it wherever books are sold.